Good evening, everybody. I'm really sorry to interrupt your conversations. I can see that everybody's having a wonderful time meeting somebody or talking to someone they already know. But we do need to begin. We have uh, quite a full evening ahead of us. But before we begin, I'd like to introduce you to Bronwyn Penrith, and she is going to do the welcome to country for us this evening. Now, Bronwyn, oh, I've got so many pieces of paper, Bronwyn, I have to make sure I've got the right one. So Bronwyn, um, and she's uh, just told me that she's very happy with what's on this piece of paper. Sometimes, you know, these bios, they, uh, they get sent along and you wonder. So Bronwyn is a Wiradjuri woman who's worked all her life for equality and the recognition of Aboriginal people and their rights. She's the chair of Moriton Consulting's board of directors. She's currently on the board of Mudjungal Aboriginal Women's Corporation near the block in Redfern and the director of Redfern Foundation Limited. She's also a recent past member of the Redfern Waterloo Aboriginal Justice Group and the City of Sydney Aboriginal Advisory Committee, and I welcome her here this evening. So please, Bronwyn. Thank, thank you. Uh, I think more importantly to say that I am Bronwyn Penrith, uh, mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, auntie and kinship carer. This is how I like really, really which I think are the really important things in my life. Also to say that I've been 20 years at Mudnagal Aboriginal Women's Centre, which, is, um, which has laid down some of the foundations of working for women against violence as an Aboriginal organisation through our uh, education, uh, 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 informal education programs for Aboriginal women, basically to raise this subject of violence. We've been doing that for some 15 years now under a program called Blackout Violence. And I just think that they're more important than probably some of the stuff that's been said. And, while I've, and, and, and why I feel like I can probably uh, uh, come here tonight and perform this welcome. So I'd like to welcome you tonight on behalf of the Gadigal people of our Eura, our, our nation. I'd like to mention that Sydney is a food bowl of the Eora people, as well as a spiritual bowl that we have lived in since time immemorial. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present. But I'd also like to pay my respects to the people who are involved in this exhibition, to Belinda and to the women and men who have put themselves forward in some way to make these statements, these so important statements. Silent Tears is such a powerful name and uh, very, very, uh, and quite appropriate when I've uh, started reading some of what this is, this is about and speaking to uh, Belinda. I think it's appropriate also as part of the welcome to talk to you a little about the dairy which is an Aboriginal spiritual learning, not from my country, but from the Northern Territory. Didiri is about a deep uh, spring of understanding, of deep listening, of deep listening and understanding, basically. And I think it's with uh, 
that kind of intent that it's really important to listen and hear and see what this exhibition is, is all about. So once again, I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the Eora Nation. Thank you. So thank you, Bronwyn. Now, tonight, um, we're here because of a wonderful exhibition, Silent Tears, and we're going to hear from people who participated in the exhibition as well as the artists. But first, I'd like to welcome Diane Green, who's Director of um, Library Central Services here at the University of Sydney, because it was through the library that we were able to host the exhibition at the University of Sydney. So, Diane actually comes from an accounting background. She's a finance executive, but importantly for tonight, she's very well respected for her social conscience and what she's been doing in the community with extensive volunteering activity and actually a finalist in the 2010 New South Wales Corporate Volunteer of the Year Awards. So I welcome Diane here tonight and to talk to us just for a few minutes in introducing the evening. Thank you. On behalf of the University of Sydney Library, I'd like to welcome you to the Law Library and to this important event. The library has been privileged to host the Silent Tears exhibition during February, March and April. A quote from Belinda Mason frames the exhibition well. Without stories, there is silence. Without our stories told, we are voiceless. Without our stories heard, we are invisible. It's even harder when the stories are hard to hear and impossible to imagine. I've been asked to explain why I personally ex support the exhibition and the panel discussion. I identify strongly with women. I come from a large family, seven girls and one boy. In my early years, there were four under three and I was the youngest. Then there were six under six. So life was hectic and forging an identity was hard in a crowd. We grew up in a small socioeconomic town in New Zealand. It was during the 60s and 70s and in that time I observed and was touched by adults interfering with children and by domestic violence. And while there was no physical violence in my home, there was a lot within the community, and all of the above were often swept under the carpet. It was a time when people with disability were not shown <coughs> due respect. When I came to the age of deciding my vocation, it was a time when there were no economic barriers to entering university, so I was able to undertake an accounting degree and enjoy good success. But on my relationship side, I didn't have good skills. At 19, I became involved in a physically and emotionally violent relationship and spent 26 years trying to make sense of the mess my life had become. From the outside, everything looked fine, but inside it was a wreck and there were many silent tears. I can attest to the shame of being in a violent relationship, the lack of voice due to fear of reprisal, and the fear that nobody would believe my stories. 
With the help of prayer, a strong family and friends, 10 years ago, I was able to make a move out on my own. And I can attest to the power of telling stories in order to heal. The realization that your secrets make you sick and covering over the secret of violence and unacceptable behavior allows it to continue. Reflecting back, I know that when people are given a safe place to tell their story, healing starts to happen. A realization occurs that this has happened to others too. I'm not weird or wrong. I've been a victim, sometimes of a particular person who's done terrible wrongs, sometime of a time when people turned a blind eye and despicable behaviors were allowed to fester, and sometimes of my own fear and inertia. I can heal through storytelling, and I can help others heal by listening and by sharing. While in recent times there's been increasing awareness across Australian society and internationally of the extent and damage caused by domestic violence, the exhibition brings to focus those with disability, those who often have less of a voice than more able-bodied people. My hope is that through increased awareness and the power of our conversation tonight, further healing will occur and we'll be part of forging a better society with equality, dignity and mutual respect, where violence is truly not tolerated. Thank you, thank you Diane. And uh, Diane spoke to the power of story, and tonight is about story. And I was sitting there listening to her and thinking, when people introduce themselves as a person, how powerful it is, and realized I had forgotten to introduce myself. <laughs> so I apologize to you all. I'm Gwyneth Llewellyn. I'm the director of the Center for um, Disability Research and Policy at this university, and very pleased to be able to co-host this evening with the library and with Sydney events. So I'm really apologetic for not saying who I was, and I totally agree with you about what is important. So I'm going to just take two seconds to say, mother of four, um, not yet great-grandmother, but grandmother of 11. And they're all quite close together. And they do take quite a lot of time. <laughs> and they're all absolutely beautiful. And of course, the most beautiful grandchildren that anybody has ever had. <laughs> so. Uh, but we need to move on, and now is a very important part of the evening. Uh, every part is important, but this is really important because you get to meet Belinda and Denise. And they're, they're a tag team, I know, so I'll just move out of the way. So Belinda Mason and Denise Beckworth, let me introduce you both. So, firstly, Belinda. Now, Belinda, for more than 17 years, Belinda has been conceptualising, producing and presenting high-quality socio-cultural engaging art exhibitions and events for national and international audiences. And some of you may have seen Belinda's exhibition Intimate Encounters, which concerns sexuality and disability. It went right round Australia in between 2001 and 2007 and of course also went to the UN. So now after that, Belinda also did her exhibition on outing disability, which again, some people in the room may have seen, 
and that engaged the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex and queer people with disability. And that exhibition really exposed multiple the discriminations, including inhibiting people's ability to experience sexuality, sex and gender as positive aspects of their lives. And we know, of course, that this current exhibition is also travelling, so it is wonderful to have Belinda here to be able to talk with us. And with Belinda is Denise Beckworth, who is a contributing artist to this particular exhibition. And Denise is a disability advocate for this particular exhibition, for Silent Tears, and more recently she became a contributing artist. Her career spans 15 years with the disability advocacy sector, including roles with People with Disability Australia and the New South Wales Mental Health Advocacy Service. And during her time at PWDA, People with Disabilities Australia, Denise had the opportunity to attend the United Nations New York to observe that very important um, part of the last decade, uh, the formation of the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in 2005, and then of course the UN Convention the following year. So for nine years, Denise has been involved with the Touching Base Committee, holding various roles, including Vice President. And Touching Base, for those of you who are not aware, is an organisation which creates linkage and education between the sex industry and people with disability through their advocacy for the sexual rights of people with disability and the rights of sex workers to equally marginalised communities. So please welcome Belinda and Denise. I just wanted to thank um, Bronwyn Penrith for coming along tonight very, very much and, um, and the community in Redfern who have been very supportive of my work including Unfinished Business which was, which was at the UN and also Dixie Link Gordon who um, couldn't be here tonight um, who travelled, who was in New York when, um, when Silent Tears was in, in New York. Um, Silent Tears is a multimedia exhibition and it reveals the stories of women with disability who are subjected to violence and women who acquire their disability as a result of violence. There's almost 30 women in the, in the project now and they're from six different countries and four different continents and the project's continuing to grow. Silent tears, they fall at the moment that we feel most alone. and the most lost. It's the turning point to look for hope and strength. The intent of Silent Tears is to create hope and unity and strength for all women who've been subjected to violence. The power of this exhibition lies in the hands of those who participate in it. Women with disabilities have been subjected to violence and women who acquire their disability as a result of violence. The complexity of the issues surrounding surrounding them can't be, can't be resolved until the reasons surrounding the violence are heard. And this can only be told by those who experience it. The participants have had the opportunity to reveal the long-term impact and circumstances of the violence and how this has affected their lives. 
They represent a range of experiences and cultures providing an important and respected narrative and a validation of their experience while also reaching out to other survivors and the wider community. I hope that the exhibition provides a focal point for discussion, education and awareness raising, providing the impetus for social change. With the amount of violence in our media and on television and movies and computer games, and not to forget social media, it's easy to become desensitized by images and visual stories that are flashed in front of us. Images from, of violence from distant lands can be viewed and consumed and forgotten within a space of a snapshot. When viewing Silent Tears, for me it was important that you didn't feel this way and when you left the exhibition. These women are not from distant lands, although there are now women from distant lands. Um, but, they, but here in this room, they are women that lived amongst us and often in silence. Um, in, in viewing and listening to the stories, and uh, you are witnessing the extent of the violence perpetrated against women in Australia. The participants at the exhibition challenge what defines dis disability what defines gender, and what defines violence. And the speakers today will reveal the complexities of what makes gender-based violence so hard to resolve. In this room, the conversation is tempered with the knowledge that amongst us are the participants of silent tears. For some, their vulnerability does not allow them the courage to speak, and, and they choose only just to listen today. They bear witness to your ability to recognise the collective impact of the violence that they have experienced. The power of their presence is a reminder that we're talking about violence against women, or they have experienced it. Their presence should act as a cons conscience for those who think they can speak for them and a support for those who speak on behalf of them. At the end of the event, the, the participants that will be available if you have any questions for them. They'll, they'll be speaking as well. The exposure to violence can normalise the situation for both perpetrators and victims. The normalisation also impacts on advocates and support work workers. It can render them traumatised and desensitised to violence. Collaboration between those who offer support services and those who require support services in key, is key in creating viable solutions. Being able to identify and acknowledge the complexity of these issues is the first step to breaking the silence. It is important to break the silence concerning the topic of violence against people with disability, and particularly the topic of violence against women with disability, as the silence exacerbates naivety. It would be naive to think violence doesn't happen to people with disability, and even more naive to think violence doesn't create disability. Silent tears creates the opportunity for violence that women with disability experience to be acknowledged and to create a bridge for people to begin a journey of realisation that violence does cause disability. Silent tears has provided a platform of support uniting women in the realisation they are not isolated in their experience of violence. Participation has enabled women to take control and tell their respective when, when you visit the exhibition, you're actually only seeing a portion of it. It's about a third of the actual exhibition. And, um, and it's designed in a particular way to be seen in a gallery space where you see all the black and white images first. 
and you read the stories. And that gives you a sense of the people and their lives and, and the, the very everydayness of, of their lives. They're portrayed with family and friends in scenes that are familiar to us all. And beside them you can read the, the story. Normally there's actually, it's in the library, so we can't have the soundscape, but there's a soundscape that accompanies the work. Um, the stories from the participants are powerful and compelling of psychological, physical, emotional, economic, or cultural violence. The power of, the ex the, the power of what they're saying are stories of domestic violence, forced sterilization, psychological trauma, fe and female genital mutilation, neglect or sexual abuse within, within institutions, within institutions or by family members. In the, in the works that I've done, I've chosen to focus on the moment of those silent tears. It's an internal portrait rather than an external one. The image is produced as, they're produced as large suspended images which freeze the moment, capturing the viewer within it the transparent materials which are used to print them on reflect the visible yet invisible nature of violence against women. When the silent tears stop falling, there's nothing left but numbness, making, making a turning point to either reach out to someone in order to break the silence or turn back and be swallowed by the silence. But if they stay silent, they remain voiceless. The video installation that accompanies the works is actually, you actually get to hear the women speak and, and talk about that moment. They're very, very emotional pieces and they're not, you won't be able to hear them but you'll be able to see the vision. And I can assure you that the, the words that they speak so incredibly are reflective of, of the visual that you see. Um, uh, so it's a trigger warning to anybody to, if they go onto the internet, to actually look at the work, or and when they read the story, there is a um, just as any particular to the to the video pieces. Silent Tears has touched many raw nerves, and support has been made available for the participants, viewers, and artists. The images um, that we've created show that are shown in the communities where the participants live, shining a dark shining a torch into the dark corners that many would prefer no light to be shed. The images do not portray violence, but they don't need to. Instead, they captivate you with a familiar intimacy before revealing a hidden truth. We can't argue when someone says, I feel it's not our right. It's part of our own journey to learn empathy rather than compassion. Our own reaction exposes us to ourselves and our ability to listen when someone puts their naked soul in your path. This opportunity for women with disability to voice their experience of violence is, an is, in a, is in an unquestioned way. The unquestioning approach is unique, is unique as often the onus is on, is on victims to provide evidence of their experience in order to obtain the various forms of support, which can be a barrier to actually obtaining support. Often when things happen to people with disability, they are siloed by their disability, making it difficult or even impossible to access support services. 
And the question, to the, the question to the panel is, when social movements have risen and fallen through history and today, the impact of technology accelerates this process in global social environments that remain disconnected. The topic of violence against women with disability is now only entering conversations on gender-based violence. With, in the recognition of this, how can an inclusive and holistic approach be made sustainable while the recognition of diversity expands and implodes across these intersections? Thank you. Thank you to Belinda and Denise. And before we invite the panelists to join us, I just wanted to acknowledge Dita Niram and Margarita Coppolino, who are both contributing artists to the exhibition. Dita is a Sydney-based emerging photo photographic and video artist, and he also identifies as a person with a cognitive disability. His achievements include being awarded the Anti-Poverties Award in 2013, recognising his work in Aboriginal communities and his documentary, Unfinished Business, being shown at the Museum of Tolerance for the 2014 United Nations World Conference on Indigenous Persons in New York. And Margarita Coppolino is a vibrant change agent and diversity consultant who's created images that capture stories from diverse communities. In two 2012, she received an Arts Access Australia Cultivate grant and was mentored by Belinda. And Margarita's work's been exhibited at numerous festivals and exhibitions, including the Head On Photographic Festival, where her work, Short and Sweet, images of short-statured people in everyday lives was featured. So we have these wonderful artists here with us tonight, as well as our panelists and our participants. So what we're going to do now is have some panelists They'll join us here, they'll speak for a few minutes, and then we'll have our participants, who with Belinda and Denise, will also speak just for a couple of minutes to you, so that you can hear everybody's story, and then there'll be time for questions. 
So our very first panellist um, that I'd like to ask to join us up here, um, we have, um, who have we got first? I think Megan, where are you? Yes, please. So while Megan's moving up, uh, because this is probably the easiest way, I think, because I keep moving, I'm just going to need something to balance on. Um, you may have seen Megan um, on television and other places. She's actually Australia's first National Children's Commissioner. She commenced her term on the 25th of March 2013 and her role focuses solely on the rights and interests of children and the laws and policies and programs that impact on them. And Megan's going to talk to us for a few minutes tonight from up there. Is that okay with you? Sure. I think that'll be fine <laughs> for all of us and we can all see you there. So over to you, Megan. Um, th thank you very much. And can I say thank you to the organisers and um, also a shout out to Belinda in particular. I think she's uh, the most amazing mover and shaker that I've come across in a long while. And she's got this creative bonfire underneath her. So there's nothing stopping her. If, she's, if you're her in her target, that's it. There's nothing, you can't do anything about it. You're hers. <laughs> so, so well done to Belinda. And all the others and have been involved in this fantastic exhibition. Uh, and the participants as well. I mean, how amazing are those stories? And uh, I don't know if most of you have been downstairs beforehand. It's such, such a powerful exhibition. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was child abuse. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, this is the one of the most um, difficult things to comprehend, uh, you know, in life. I think that adults can be cruel to children, can neglect children, and can abuse children and that they've broken that sacred bond of trust. And, uh, you know, it's very complex how those situations arise, but it does happen, and that obviously is the, the reality, the brutal reality of the experiences of so many of the participants uh, in the exhibition. And acknowledging that is really important, um, that this is a reality for many people and many women, and in particular women. And, you know, the statistics also tell a pretty difficult story as well. Um, so in 2013 and 14, there were just under 41,000 children were the subject of um, over 50,000 substantiated reports of child abuse and neglect. Um, 40 were for emotional abuse, and that usually means exposure to um, domestic violence. 28% um, for neglect, 19% for physical abuse, and 14% for um, sexual abuse. And girls were much more likely to be the subjects of substantiations for sexual abuse. So, and that's really probably only the tip of the iceberg because most, um, most kids don't get reported to child protection departments uh, and have their uh, reports substantiated. And some work I did last year on the impact of family violence in children, um, I, I saw some new data from the ABS Personal Safety Survey, which is a great source of information about the breadth of experiences. And this was about children's experiences. And this showed that um, 800, just under 840,000 adult women first experienced physical abuse 
and over 500,000 first experienced sexual abuse as a child between the ages of 0 and 14 years of age. And that's at the hands of a family member. And look, for me, these figures are pretty staggering and they indicate that we've got a pretty big problem in this country and that we need to continue to call it out just like Silent Tears is doing. And so you talk about what's sustainable, how we sustain inclusivity, as we keep having these conversations. We keep growing this exhibition in all various ways so that uh, women uh, can tell their stories. From, from my role, and just to, because um, I know I don't have too much time, um, the Convention on the Rights of the Child is the thing that really drives um, what I do. And this says that all children have the right to special protection because of their vulnerabilities. They have the right to non-discrimination and equality. And, and this should be regardless of their race, gender, age, sexual orientation, religion or disability. And they also have the right to be protected from all forms of violence, injury, abuse or neglect. Now, we signed the convention over 25 years ago as a nation. It's our duty to make sure that all children, and I think if you take a rights lens to this issue, uh, all children and all adults uh, are treated equally and all have their rights understood and realised. So um, I, I did want to say something a little bit about um, the fact that this event follows the showcasing of the Silent Tears um, in um, a side event of the 60th session of the Commission of the Status of Women in New York a few weeks ago, and that a number of the participants were at, as well as Belinda and her partners in crime. And, you know, it was uh, a really powerful um, event, and it meant that sort of the ripples of this exhibition and what it's trying to do is flowing throughout the world in all sorts of ways. And I think that's another way of sustaining um, information and stories. Um, and so I think that the potential of events like this to put these intersectional issues on the agenda like violence and disability and gender, uh, it, can be, it was, can be seen in the Commission's agreed conclusion that the Commission of the Status of Women in New York, and it called on governments to take action to promote and protect the rights of all women and girls with a disability by addressing multiple and intersecting forms of discrimination they face and ha ensuring their full and effective participation in society. Um, one of the key rights in the Convention of the Rights of the Child is uh, the right to have a say, to have a voice. And really, I believe this is the gateway to really realising all other human rights. You look at the Royal Commission into Sexual Abuse, those kids were silenced. They've been living with that for years and years and years and, you know, 20 years later they're, they're first getting to tell their story and trying to deal with the trauma and the intergenerational trauma for many of them. And so we, silencing children, silencing human beings doesn't protect them. Again, we need to call out violence in all its forms and I believe we need to be really vigilant in uh, eliminating it from the menu of problem solving once and for all. And we do have an opportunity to do that right now. It's a great point in history, in Australia's history. We've got to seize that day. So, thank you. Thank you, Megan.
And of course, everybody's got a very difficult job tonight because they only have a small amount of time to talk about things they could talk about forever. And I have my colleague Zyra here who does have a one minute left sign. So we will be yes. So, and I'm sorry about that, that we always have to rush people through, but I know that you want to hear everybody. So the next person who will be speaking to us will be Kirsty Foster. So Kirsty, can I ask you to come up too? And Kirsty is an Associate Professor in Medical Education, an Associate Dean International, and the Head of the Office for Global Health at Sydney Medical School at this university. And she has 17 years of experience as a primary care physician in Scotland, and 15 years of experience here in Australia as a medical educator. And she would like us to say that she is so well aware from a clinical perspective of the ubiquity of violence against women across the world and is passionate about engaging all of us and everyone else in tackling this issue. So thank you. Yes, thank, thanks. Thanks very much, Gwyneth. And um, it's absolutely a, a huge pleasure to uh, see you all here tonight about this very important topic. Yet again this morning, when I woke up this morning and put on the news, um, the first thing on the news was um, the tragic story of Robin Fraley, who's at the moment in Liverpool Hospital, having suffered from a hammer attack from her, by her husband yesterday. This has to stop, and that's why we're, we're all here. Um, we've heard from Megan about the culture of violence that seems to exist in our community, and it's simply not good enough, is it? Um, Silent Tears really highlights this issue and which is why it's such an important, powerful exhibition. These two issues of violence and particularly violence against women with disability. Um, it pervades all sections of our society. Um, as you've heard, my own professional experience started as a general practitioner in a big um, I was in a big academic practice in a very deprived area of Edinburgh in Scotland. Um, we had the biggest cohort of intravenous drug users in Europe in that practice. I was the only woman partner, actually, in a partnership of nine men. We did have practice nurses and so on. So I saw a lot of the, well, all of my partners did. We have a lot, had a lot of violence issues there. Um, and people, exp and so I, that was where I became very familiar, first of all as a young GP, but after 13 years had seen um, a, a tremendous amount of, um, heard a tremendous amount of stories from people and uh, women in particular. And the complexity, as has been mentioned before, the complexity of these issues. I then uh, spent a short time um, before moving to Australia in, in a middle-class practice, a much more middle-class practice, where the issues, the, the issues still exist. The issues still exist. They're just often better hidden, I think. Um, and I suppose that was what brought home to me how ubiquitous these issues are. And since I've been in Australia, I've been working much more internationally. I do a lot of work in rural Vietnam and violence against women is a major issue there among ethnic minority groups. So it's everywhere. 
at Sydney Medical School, well, I've, I saw this exhibition and met Belinda and the other participants um, at the Ballarat International Festival of Photography. You might ask, where, why was I there? My husband works in, uh, he, he's a, a curator in contemporary photography, so he was there and I tagged along as the, 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 the chattel. And I was absolutely blown away when I saw this exhibition and I really felt my role now at Sydney Medical School, I, I have several roles and one of them is I'm involved in the education of medical students. At Sydney Medical School, we want, uh, we want to graduate doctors and the other health-related faculties want to graduate health professionals who are sensitive to the individuals and families, um, who do listen, are able to listen, who are aware of these issues in our society and who can try and make a change, certainly work with and advocate um, for women against violence and so on. And so when I saw this exhibition at Ballarat, I thought this has to come to a place like this, a place of learning, and that's what we're all doing tonight. We're learning from each other. Um, as a, uh, certainly as a medical faculty, we want to look outward and work with um, our communities, uh, individuals that we look after to make things better, and that's what we need to do. So we need to advocate to end this. We want to train young health professionals who are aware of these issues and having them in the, this exhibition, this such a powerful exhibition in the library here gives our 50,000 students that we have here and the staff the opportunity to see this very moving, powerful exhibition and to realize that we all have a part in ending these, this problem. Thank you. Salthouse, who's with us tonight, to come now and talk to us from her perspective. Now, Sue, I know, is going to hold us to account, but Sue, um, who I have met before and I'm very pleased to have here tonight, uh, has worked in the area of social justice and human rights since 1996, playing an active role in policy analysis on the intersecting issues of gender and disability discrimination, which affect women with disabilities, contributing to their high risk of experiencing violence, abuse and exploitation. And she's convener of Women with Disabilities, ACT. Many of you, I hope, are familiar with women with disabilities around Australia and the various branches that we have of women with disabilities in the states and territories. And Sue, quite rightly, is going to hold us to account because we don't have a ramp for the dais. And so I'm apologising on behalf of the university, but Sue is still going to say something, and I said, please do. So welcome, Sue. Thank you very much, Gwyneth. And we've heard already tonight about the high levels of violence against women and children um, that goes across Australia, that goes across the world. It's an epidemic. But I want to talk about women with disabilities. And perhaps it starts by making us feel like the other. Here I am, sitting at a lower level, separated from the other people in the room, 
And it's just an illustration of how many barriers there are in this world against people, and it's not just disabilities, who are a little bit different. And I think that what we need to do is look at that otherness that we create in our society and look at what we can do to, ad to address that. I think what we have done, and the United Nations talks about it a lot, and it did take them many, many meetings of the Commission on the Status of Women to realise that the intersection of our different attributes serves to push some people further and further away from having their being able to take their rightful place in the world. And that I think for women with disabilities, the intersection of just, just disability and gender, in Australia such a gendered nation that we're trying to address, but those, that simple intersection pushes women to, to, with disabilities into a periphery where they are, um, where it creates a power vacuum. And the men who step into this power vacuum are not strong men. They're men who are looking for, they're weak men, who are looking for a differential. And they, in fact, when we look, when you hear in, in um, the media about abuse of children or abuse of women, these, these are, or how, how men groom young children, women with disabilities face a situation where they too are groomed. And I want to talk a little more about the fact that that intersection of just two attributes and we've talked tonight about LGBTIQ um, people and the more attributes that you put together that are attributes of otherness means the further and further we put up the barriers and create a differential, create that power vacuum into which the predators come. However, I don't want to dwell on that because when we've talked about tonight about the people who have contributed. One of the things that we've been working at um, in the advisory panel to the, to the um, Council of Australian Governments on Domestic Violence, we have been very strong in saying that women with disabilities are not vulnerable. We are strong. If you look at the Silent Tears exhibition, it's extremely emotional, it's extremely um, daunting, but the women who've contributed to that are strong women because without that strength, they would not be there. And we're very grateful that Belinda has been able to empower these women working together to capture that moment. And I think that one of the other things that happens when when we create these barriers and create distance between members from, of, and exclude certain members of society, we render people voiceless. And in fact, many of the people in our community are actually literally voiceless. And that exhibitions such as Belinda's begin to, make, to enable people 
to see that distance that we've created, to see the power imbalance that we've created. But I want to say, and I want to dwell on the strength that women with disabilities have, because we have talked about this strength from a position of being very voiceless for years, and yet now we are seeing, we are seeing things begin to open up. And it makes me very emotional to see that the, um, the United Nations does identify that here in Australia, the period, the universe, just escape me for a moment, the, the last universal periodic review where other nations have the chance to look at how Australia is tracking against our human rights, the human rights conventions that we've signed up to 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Some we could say they're not worth the paper that they're written on. But the United, the United uh, Universal Periodic Review has said to Australia, stop non-consensual sterilisation of women, which we, which we practise in this country and we disguise it under all sorts of, um, of, medical, um, of medical numbers to stop the involuntary detention of people with disabilities. In our Aboriginal community, that otherness has meant that people remain in detention indefinitely. To stop involuntary treatment, to stop restrictive practices of people who have mental health conditions. To, to acknowledge that everybody in this country has legal capacity and that means people with, with intellectual disabilities must be imbued with legal capacity to take their rightful place in our society. The United Nations in our convention has separated out that um, mental health from legal capacity. We must have that. Um, we've talked tonight about that violence in institutions and residential settings and uh, we know that um, that has been looked at um, by our various commissions. We have got failures in legislation that really exacerbates and that otherness and denies us entry to justice. But I think that um, I'd like to look a little bit at a little bit of the work of the COAG panel but my hope is really rising. The Victorian Royal Commission, which was brought down last Thursday, their Royal Commission into Family Violence, has said that the whole of the workforce needs training in, in the whole of the disability workforce needs training in domestic violence. It has said that the whole of, and it will be funded in Victoria because they've agreed to this. It says that the whole of the judiciary needs training in disability awareness. It said that um, all family workers, all family violence workers need training in disability. I think I said that. Um, all disability workers, it said, need training in domestic violence. And here is the kicker. It has said 
that the National Disability Insurance Scheme needs to make sure that it is gender aware and that, that all the disability workers, all people who have an interface, and I'm going to say that all people working in it, need to be trained in gender awareness and family violence. So that when a woman turns up to talk about the supports that she needs, there will be some understanding that this is a woman who has suffered trauma, but who is now standing before them strong and wanting supports which are, which are adapted and right for her life as it is right now. So we're on the cusp here, in, we've, I've been talking about this today, in, um, in New, New South Wales, you're about to start rolling out this new scheme. It's the greatest social reform of our time. It requires all of you to be more gender aware and more aware of the intersection between gender and disability. And I just, I'm just so grateful to Belinda for giving, and, and the women who've participated and the other artists involved, Dita and Margarita, for giving us all that voice, a voice to the voiceless and raising up our awareness so that all of us, all of us in this room, all of us in this university, all of us in Australia, will start to break down that otherness. And it goes beyond disability, it goes to the true meaning of diversity and inclusion. I think I'd better shut up, but thank you for listening. <laughs> You've got to get a ramp. You need a ramp. <coughs> I wonder when you're going to say it much stronger than that, so we could listen to you all night. And thank you very much, but we do need to move on. So Morgan, um, let me invite you to come and speak. And Morgan Carpenter is co-chair of organisation, so much easier, organisation Intersex International Australia. Morgan is an advocate and consultant on bodily diversity issues and a social and technology policy researcher. He's founder of the new Nash International Intersex Day project and he's a technologies consultant to the National LGBTI Health Alliance and a consultant on intersex issues to the Foundation for Young Australians for its Australia project. So, welcome, Morgan. Thank you very much for the introduction. Um, and I'm really glad to be here. Um, uh, the only person that looks like a man on the stage. Um, accompanying my oldest friend in Australia, Candice, um, who is one of the women in the exhibition. Um, we met online, both of us dealing with life-changing medical treatment. Um, I was struggling with a series of invasive surgeries, and Candice was trying her very best to deal with the trauma of testosterone treatment intended to make her into a real man. Um, and I'm really grateful to be here uh, with such distinguished speakers. And I've been asked to talk about identity. So I'm going to talk a little bit about identity. And in doing so, I'm going to talk about some of the underlying issues that brought myself and Candice together. Um, and it shows some of the different forms that, that violence can take. Uh, and maybe we haven't covered those yet, so it's a chance to talk about something slightly different. Um, intersex people 
we're both intersex, are born with sex characteristics that don't meet medical and social norms for female or male bodies. And our bodies and identities are stigmatized as a result. As intersex people and advocates, we're always confronted by expectations, interest, and a focus on identity. What do we identify as? Uh, we must be a third sex, a third gender. We must be really strange and, and interesting. Uh, and these issues are important, or seen as important, over and above the other issues we face. And um, intersex identity is very commonly misunderstood. Um, for a great many intersex people, intersex is a political identity. It's a way of asserting the acceptability and dignity of a stigmatized embodiment in much the same way that people identify as women, as disabled, as Aboriginal. All of those identities or labels are intersectional. It's possible to be an intersex woman with a disability. And, and the difficulty with framing gender, framing intersex as gender identity, is that intersex people have many different gender identities. Candace is a woman, I'm not. Uh, and we also have two different birth sex assignments. And like trans people, um, our actual gender identities are often denied, but uniquely our legal sexes are also denied. Um, in the words of Judith Butler recently, intersex identity is romanticized, a belief that because our bodies are not standard for women or men, that we must be other. And the ABS has even horrifically recently created an other sex for the national census. And it's not at all clear what that's going to collect. Um, the reality is that most intersex people are female or male. Um, in independent peer-reviewed research published earlier this year, 52% are female, 23% are male, and 25% use other classifications. 27% of us have disabilities, ranging from learning disabilities through to the effects of osteoporosis. Um, and very real issues to do with um, both disability uh, and um, issues to do with embodiment get obscured or overlooked by that focus on what we identify as. Um, to medicine, Intersex traits are disorders of sex development, or DSD. Um, intersex people have abnormal bodies. Um, interestingly, just 3% of people in that Australian research use that term DSD to describe themselves. But that rises to 21% situationally when needing to access medical treatment. So people are being forced to make themselves abnormal when accessing medical care. Um, more significantly, the, um, the research showed that a majority of people had medical treatment due to their intersex status, and a majority had negative consequences. The research showed strong evidence suggesting a pattern of institutionalized shaming and coercive treatment. Um, this state, New South Wales, obscures these issues. It's very difficult to find out what's going on. But Victoria publishes an online neonatal handbook, and it describes an intersex birth as distressing, a medical emergency with normalizing surgery, usually within the first year. 
Uh, those include clitoral surgeries, hormone treatment, uh, vaginal or urethral reconstruction. Ethical guidance is omitted, but there is guidance, and it itself outlines that therapeutic rationales for those cosmetic treatments include marriage prospects, stigma, and identity formation. There is no consensus in Australia about the conduct of such normalizing interventions, and clinicians themselves acknowledge particular concern about sexual function and sensation after early surgeries. And so intersex experiences of medicalization are substantively the same as those of people with disabilities. Yet medicalization can make lifelong patients out of intersex people with healthy bodies. We see this in sport, where four female Olympic-level athletes of intersex traits, all from developing countries, have been disclosed as being sterilized and undergoing clitoridectomies under duress in order to compete in sport. That's actually a form of female genital mutilation, FGM. Here in Australia, we see stories of clinical examinations that are tantamount to rape. We see unwanted vaginoplasties, sterilization, and testosterone treatment on people who identify as women. We see stigma, bullying, uh, pu pubertal medical interventions that result in 18% of intersex people failing to complete secondary school. And the average in Australia is 2%. And, and treatment models are based on the notion that the typical is normal, that a biological normality, however arbitrary, justifies social judgment. And especially in children, parents find it difficult to think of their child in non-pathological ways because that is how their child is described to them. Children subjected to cosmetic intervention before they can consent. We see a lack of personal autonomy a failed distinction between therapeutic and non-therapeutic treatment, a lack of oversight, um, a lack of follow-up, a minimization of numbers affected, and rhetorics of change to clinical practice that lack any supporting evidence whatsoever. So, you know, violence takes place also in healthcare settings, and it takes place through coercion to make people fit narrow definitions of what it means to be a woman. These are also issues of violence, and thank you so much to Belinda for letting me come and talk about them today. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you very much. So now we have um, our participants who are going to speak with us, and we're going to do that. Do people want to stand up together and then each? Yes? Okay. So we have a number of participants who are going to speak. The first one is Rochelle, Rochelle Taylor. So please, the floor is yours. Would you like to speak from the lectern? Yeah. Good evening. I identify as an Aboriginal Australian. People make assumptions I'm a white Australian because of the colour of my skin. I have faced discrimination most of my life. I stand here now, tall and proud of my culture. I'm gratefully here this evening as part of this amazing journey and exhibition called Silent Tears. I thank you, Belinda. I'm here tonight 
as a survivor, not a statistic. This is really important. I come from a very dysfunctional family, one that was filled with alcohol, drugs and violence. I am a survivor. I am a survivor of all forms of abuse. I am a survivor of emotional, physical, mental, spiritual, sexual abuse. I am a survivor of bestiality. I am a survivor of child pornography. I survived actions of my own mother trying to kill me with a tomahawk. As a child, I lived through hell. I was very isolated, alone. I had no one to turn to, no one to help me, no one for guidance, no one to rescue me. I merely existed. I just grew. How did I survive? I survived because I wanted to experience love and life. I survived because my mother died. Children need to be brought up in a village environment. They need to be filled with love, support and guidance. I believe there needs to be more changes out there to peers, to the education system, more things out there put in place to identify abuse, neglect, any form of violence amongst children. There should be safe places for children to attend, to express their thoughts, their feelings, their fears, anything they need to experience the safeness. This could be implemented throughout the schools. No child should live through fear. My silent tears have stopped. I now have a voice. Thank you. So the next person who's going to speak is Betty Burke. Good evening. My photo that Belinda took of me is the one called Unseen. The reason why we chose this is because that's exactly what it is. I'm a mother of four children and I want my children to grow up in an environment and in a world that disability is acknowledged, but not the disabilities that you can see, the unseen disabilities. My disability is different from those you have heard. I have depression. And you say, well, how is that a disability? It is a disability because, as you can see, I am struggling here tonight. I am struggling here tonight, but the part of it is when I am not able to look after my children and give them what they need because I don't have the energy, the motivation or the strength to do it. Depression needs to be recognised. It needs to be noticed and the stigma that you have, that most people have and you get from it needs to stop. Through doing this expedition, 
with Belinda, Denise and Dieter, I have now been given a voice. This is through this expedition is the first time I have actually spoken about my disability, about the abuse. And I forgot to mention my abuse is emotional and sexual through my father and then <coughs> emotional and... I'm so sorry. Just, yeah. Yep. Yep. Emotional. And through that, I then went into a marriage that became very um, not well, abusive, depressive. Yes, it was mental, mental, mental abuse. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, so I had to get out of that for my children, and that was extremely hard as well. Oh, I've just okay. So the feeling of isolation that you have and the feeling of knowing that when you look at people and you do end up in tears or you are not able to do what is expected of you, it becomes very hard and it, you feel isolated. So I ask and stand here, when you look at these photographs tonight, remember that there are also unseen disabilities that do need to be recognised and they do need to be put out there. Thank you. Thank you, Betty. Thank you on behalf of all of us and to Rochelle too. So, Carolyn. Uh, oh, here she is. Carolyn de Wigenaire is now going to speak to us. I'm so lucky to be here that you can hear me. I'm going to read what I read out at New York when I went to the exhibition in New York. Um, and I think that I've been very privileged to be included in this exhibition of Belinda's, Dieter's, Denise's, and all the other people who've been involved with this exhibition. My story is quite different from the ones you've been hearing. Um, I think it's absolutely wonderful that violence against women is being recognized. I suffered it many, many years ago with my first marriage. I then had a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful second marriage with a beautiful Frenchman who loved me very, very dearly. And what happened one year after his death has been totally catastrophic for me. I suffered female genital mutilation. The act of female genital mutilation on young girls is a barbaric, catastrophic event that must be stamped out worldwide. I am here so that, you, so that I can hopefully work to help abolish it. I was 58 when for no medical reason, a doctor, whilst I was un under anaesthetic, picked up a scalpel and cut out all my external genitalia, all of it. Um, if you read the thing downstairs, it'll tell you the size. It was um, 94 by 54 by 34. It was a large amount of my flesh just went into surgical waste. What happened to it after that? I don't know whether it was incinerated or put into the landfill. I don't know. 
But he, um, I went to court in 07, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, including the High Court in 13. He went to prison. Yes, it is a crime to alter the genitalia of young girls. They are too young to know what changes this act has made on their life. For me, the effect has been devastating. I now have a disability. All animals have methods by which their urine or feces are voided clear of the body to prevent soiling. I have lost that part of my anatomy to direct my urine clear of my body. I can never squat to urinate. The urine runs down the inside of my legs into my shoes. The human body has a network of nerves throughout. The external genitalia of both sexes have the same amount of nerve endings. In utero, for the first eight weeks, the gonads are the same. It is only after that time when testosterone kicks in that the differences occur. So I lost the equivalent of the penis and the scrotum, the family jewels, the meat and two veg, whatever else you like to call it. A man loses his penis and he is awarded 13 million US dollars compensation. I lost the equivalent and was awarded $164,000. Another story, I never received that money. That's another story which will come out later. Cut out a young girl's clitoris so that she does not experience the full joy of loving sex and it is unimportant. Cut off the penis of a young man so that he cannot experience the full joy of loving sex and the world will explode. Men and women should be equal in this wonderful world, not one subservient to the other. Please stamp out worldwide female genital mutilation. everybody. My name is Amal. I'm Samoan. I am transgender and this is my story. Um, many years ago I suffered to the hands of both sexual, physical and mental abuse. Uh, having grown up as a child it disables me in ways that you're not able to communicate, you're not able to have a proper conversation, you're not able to speak, you're just not able to move in ways that you'd like to, in your own life journey, that you want it to flow. For me, it was very stagnant. Um, how did it make me feel as a child? It was the case of going up in a Pacific Island family, um, strong in their belief in Christian Christianity, Christianity. So therefore, there was that challenge and being able to, not being able to speak, but there was the thing is, yeah, we hear you, but you stay in the background. So how does that make me feel as a child? You have no self-esteem. 
You have no idea, you have no identity of who you are. Uh, you just have no direction. So for a good 30 so years, it was pretty much limbo. Um, I think six, seven years ago for me, it was the case of realizing that one becomes tired. And for me, it wasn't just um, mentally, it was both physically for myself. So for me, I had to find ways and had to pull the strength within myself to change what was going on for myself inside my own body, inside my own soul. Um, trying to find the belief in myself that you know there are amazing people out there that will help you in this life journey and all. And if you find those people and you have some form of self-belief in yourself, that you know things can progress from there. So for me, six, seven years ago, the turning point was having succumbed to being now um, being on a dialysis machine three days a week for 12 hours. Um, and that just adds, the dimensions of violence speaks volumes. There's so many different angles. My angle is from a culture's perspective as well. Uh, that we t like, we tend to shove things under the carpet. We have this so good goody two shoes attitude that, oh no 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 no, you can't. That's not our culture. But I believe so in the statistics that have come out just recently, that there are numbers of Pacific Island groups that you know, with regards to domestic violence, feature quite largely on a on a world scale. The other angle is trans women of color the statistics in America are quite phenomenal. So for me to speak here today is so important that we realize that there's so many layers to violence, violence of women, violence of women of color, violence of you know, women that are transgender, and that it is important for us to address it. For me, it's all about being about the healing, and especially in the last uh, seven years, the language has changed to, for me. It was to affirm of what I was told in the past, that you won't amount to much, that you are useless. For me, it is to heal beautifully. So I had to change the language. I still believe my way of going through it is just to, uh, a big thing for me was to acknowledge my feelings, that once upon a time, I was angry, really angry, that once upon a time, I was sad, once upon a time, I didn't feel like living. I realize now that given the circumstance and given the great support that I have from my family, my friends and my work co uh, colleagues and my partner, that you know the sky is the limit. You can change. The way I look about from things repeating negatively from the past is that it is important to have dialogue, fresh dialogue, you know, keep the conversation going make people think, make people utilize whatever's out there, help, assistance. From my culture perspective, it's important for me to get my cultural people talking because we tend to shove things, like I said, in the past under the carpet. It is important to all feel valued, even our little ones, even our, you know, kamekilekiki, our small children. It is important to hear their values, how they feel, it's also important at the end of the day to love ourselves. Um, 
it was important for me to have those feelings, especially to acknowledge them on a, on a bigger scale, because therefore I could go forward. I can have the self-belief in myself that you can con now control your destiny. You've had stuff that's happened in the past, but it is, it is your journey and your journey alone, and you choose who you can have around you when it's all going. So I believe, you know, the thing of healing beautifully. Heal beautifully, Amal. Heal beautifully. That's what got me through. I never got any counselling. I just had to, I just had to, you know, the six years ago, it just, it was the language that I was using to myself, especially, you know, um, having to realise that, you know, it's your body, you take charge of it, you know, you can say no. You can have people that will respect you at the end of the day. At the moment, I have a partner who is Lebanese, he's Muslim, and we just gel really well together. I'm so proud that I've, I am in a space where my heart says to myself, I love myself. I love it in a humble way. I love it as a beautiful Samoan trans woman who speaks volume, who has a lot of love in my heart, have a lot of love for other people. And that you can do whatever you can do, you can do whatever you believe. Just have really awesome people behind you and that you have to learn to let go of what has made you so angry for so long. Everything else will fall into place. You will do it at your own time, in your own pace. You're allowed to be angry, but there will be a time when you will grow older and you will have to learn to let go. And so the whole journey for me, especially in the last seven years, has been about my life experience, about my healing. I'm so proud of myself um, just for just doing it at the end of the day. How I can change it is by happily and positively engaging my own family and my own friends to have that dialogue, to be able to talk about stuff as sexual abuse or physical and mental abuse and to be free about it, that it's okay to be angry, that it's okay to be sad. You know, once upon a time I thought to myself, I'm gonna go out of this world. I'm gonna go really angry and I'm gonna go sad. Now I can say, if I'm gonna go out of this world, I'm gonna go happy and in a humorous way, I'm gonna go out eating Italian food. <laughs> so, um, yeah, bless all our hearts and souls, but um, where there's a will, there's a way and I just choose to go forward with it. And um, yeah, just feel so privileged and honored and I really want to thank Belinda and the other, you know, the, um, the other staff, Denise and Dita who couldn't be here. But it's, it's your journey and yeah, just own it and work it to your advantage. Thank you. for that and could we just give a, a round of applause to all our participants <laughs> and perhaps if I can just say some of your words again for not only owning their own stories but for being so courageous for sharing them with us tonight so thank you all very much indeed now we have a few minutes and there's an opportunity I know for Belinda and the participants if you would like to ask them anything or if you would like to ask any questions from the panel. 
I know we've run a little over time and so people are probably feeling a little anxious about dinner and so on. Please feel free just for a few minutes of questions and then at the end of those questions I will draw it to a close because I know people have other responsibilities too, but people will be able to stay and to talk if they would wish to uh, for a few minutes after we've formally finished the evening. So Sue, do you want to come over? I feel like I'm standing right in your way now. Um, and Belinda and the other participants, no? Okay. So may I ask, are there any questions to anybody? We have a microphone up the back that Meredith has. Would anybody like to ask a question? I think everybody's so moved by the, the stories that have been shared with us. Yes, sir. Um, just want to ask the gentleman on stage, sorry I didn't get your name. Um, is there an ideological barrier going on with the, the medical people? Could you repeat the question? Yeah, sorry, is there an ideological barrier coming that you pick up from the medical people with regard to uh, trans people? and the way that they respond to them and deal with them medically? Um, well, um, I, well, I can't really speak for trans people. Um, I mean, I know that trans and intersex get confused all the time. Um, trans people have a gender identity that differs from their sex assigned at birth. Um, and they struggle to get medical treatment to change their bodies to, 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 so, that, so that they have the appearance that they want. But intersex people have, are born with sex characteristics that differ from medical norms for what it means to be female and what it means to be male. And we're given medical treatment, given medical treatment, um, whether we like it or not. Um, and that, that takes place often in early childhood or puberty before we're able to give, uh, give consent ourselves. Parents give consent. Um, but why does it happen? Um, it's been happening for about 60, 70, 80 years. Um, originally uh, under a, a medical model called the opti Optimal Gender Model that was developed by a New Zealander called John Money. Um, and since then, um, there has been a rhetoric of change and a rhetoric of more care, but we don't see any actual evidence of practical change in um, hospitals. Um, so um, why does it still happen? I mean, from my perspective, there is a degree of inertia, there are arguments of, from authority, there are arguments from treatment that we've always treated these people so we're gonna carry on doing that. Um, and there is fundamentally this conception that somebody whose body is non-standard is abnormal because of that. Um, and it's this expectation that if your body does not fit these very narrow definitions of what it means to be a real woman or a real man, then we've got to fix you and make you look right. And if you look right, then you're going to grow up with, with an identity that is right. Um, so that's kind of what happens. I, I, could I just add something to that? I mean, one of the things Morgan's pointed out is that some countries around the world, to try and challenge some of these, the ways we all, many of us think, and including the professions in particular who are in, in charge of this stuff. Um, so Malta, for instance, who'd have known, who'd have guessed, has taken... Um, sex off birth certificates. Now, when you think about that, that changes how you look at things, doesn't it? And what action you're likely to take. 
So that's just an example of some of the ways that I think we need to challenge ourselves in this kind of area. Yeah, and we, and we, we need to speak up. I mean, um, uh, we need to speak up because, as you say, there's a lot of rhetoric about this, um, a lot of rhetoric, but at least the rhetoric is moving in the right direction. The action is too slow. Um, and it is for... Unsubstantiated. Yeah, and all of that. I mean, I think since... Certainly from when I was a medical student uh, to now, there's a lot of change I would seek, but I agree with you that um, there's still a lot of things happening that are not right. And we all, it's all of our responsibility. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, okay. Are there any other questions? Yes. Thank you. I just want to know how you came across these really strong, powerful women. How did you pick them up for that? How did you find them? How did you get them to collaborate yeah. with you and create this? <laughs> yeah. I think the only answer I've got for that is I don't really understand the question because, oh no, I, I know, but I don't understand why it's asked because I don't really find it very hard to find these people. So, um, people, what we find is people are quite willing to share their stories because Belinda sees people as people first and foremost, you know? And it's about letting people have the platform to share their story and then they're willing to expose themselves to you because you're listening to them and they're being heard. And maybe that's something some of the participants want to reflect on, yeah. how they found each other. <laughs> I'll, I'll actually elaborate on that for you. I've actually known Belinda personally for many, many years. She actually did not know my story. Um, she knew a little bit about the emotional abuse. She did not know about the sexual abuse. And I was actually visiting her and she was showing me what she was doing because I've always kept a keen eye on her works. <laughs> And I just looked at her and went, I am one of these people. And she, then she heard my, my story. Um, but Belinda has this way, like, I, I, because of how I was, I couldn't elaborate in my speech. But as a child, I wasn't heard. It was with my sisters as well. And they did bring it up and they weren't, um, nothing was ever done about it and a lot of the family ignored it and denied it. And because um, of the way my mother was with me, I was not game enough to even speak because she wouldn't have believed, nobody would have believed me anyway because nothing I said was right. Um, so for me, speaking about it to Belinda was one of the very first times I ever spoke about it. And it was then that it, it just hits you. It hits you like a ton of bricks that you've been dealing with this for all your life and the right person comes into your path and you go, I need to tell this person. And for me, that was Belinda. Thank you. Is there anyone else who would like to ask a question? Yes. Thanks, Mary. Hi, before asking my question, I just would like to express my profound thanks to the participants and the artistic collaborators for their incredible courage and vision. 
I have many perspectives on this exhibition, um, which I cannot share now, but because we're in a, a learning institution, it feels incredibly important to me to, to touch on, with respect, um, the potential for institutionalised violence that can occur within learning institutions. And I wondered whether any of the panellists or the participants had any perspectives on that that they wished to share. Just to give a couple of examples I can think of in the last um, 18 months in my own experience, one would be um, a course in which I was enrolled at a Centre for Disability Studies where the lecturer actually put forward the view that a better society in the future would be one where babies with disabilities would be automatic, pregnancies of children with disabilities would be automatically terminated. And that, that view went unchallenged except by myself and another person who was visibly disabled in the room. And that issue is still outstanding as a matter of dispute with that learning institution. Another example would be where people with disabilities are um, asked to participate in research studies to help broaden understanding, further learning and hopefully contribute to social change and where in that process they are actually subjected to emotional and physical violence and made more vulnerable in the process of trying to contribute to higher learning. So I just wondered if anyone on the panel or any of the participants may have had experiences in educational settings that they may wish to reflect on. And particularly given that we are in the law building here, I guess, finishing, I just wanted to say that I think we have some huge changes in our legal system that need to be made and perhaps there may be some um, grassroots perspectives. Thank you. I think that um, it goes back to the notion of otherness because we do try to normalise um, the bodies around us and depending on, on how that's depicted and certainly in the disability sector we are very wary of any euthanasia debate. We are very wary of, um, of designer babies and uh, I think that, that no matter what the normalised world wants to do to make everybody uh, uniform, you will never stop accidents. You will never stop um, genetic aberrations. Um, and so I think the opposite tack should be taken that we know we need to embrace diversity better. We know it's not just disability, it's race, religion, so many things. We need to embrace that better and until we do, we're lesser human beings. And if I could just add to Sue's comment, Rosemary Kayes, who some of you may know, um, who is a woman with a disability at the uh, University of New South Wales and been very active in many parts of um, the legal system. Um, she always talks about it as being diversity, as being part of the human condition. And I wonder, Sue, if I could just add, one of the things that she says is not just make us better human beings, but make us a better society. And of course, you know, this is, this is I, I hope what people will be able to take away from tonight. Um, and the, uh, several people have talked about continue the conversation 
to be able to speak out and to speak loudly and proudly. Several people have talked about not the rhetoric, but the action. And several people have talked about things have changed but go so slowly. So I'm not suggesting we need to finish on that note, but all of those uh, points have been brought out tonight. And I thank everybody for doing that. I think we have another question, and then I think we might need to call it an evening. So just the last question, thank you. I think it was um, somewhat of a maybe a response to uh, something that the last uh, person said, but I think also in um, institutions, particularly in academic institutions, the um, tendency of human ethics um, yeah. research committees to silence the voice of people with disabilities to, with a view to having a paternalistic view. Um, it's very difficult to get through human ethics research committee um, research that allows for the voice of people with disabilities to be heard. And I think that we need to really, um, as an as a academic community, really challenge that paternalism that happens um, because it is so important, as we've heard tonight, that, um, that we do give voice to people, that we don't silence people. Uh, and it's, it's, um, that it's important that, that we, we as academics are not the ones talking for people, but, but providing them with a, uh, an avenue uh, through uh, academic work to give voice to people with disabilities, to give voice to people who are um, deemed, whatever way you want to look at it, vulnerable, without us deciding that they're too vulnerable to talk. Well, I've just looked at my watch and um, it's actually nine o'clock and I'm sure you don't even realise that because clearly it has been a very engaging and a very provocative and a very touching and emotional evening. And I'd like to thank you all again for sharing with us your stories and for our panel coming along to give their perspectives as well. And to Belinda, uh, and Denise, who are very quietly in the corner, to thank you both as well, and to everybody else who's been involved in bringing this exhibition and this evening together. But most of all, to thank all of you for thinking that this was important and something that you wanted to be part of, to share and to take from here with you, to share more widely. So thank you very much and I look forward to you all continuing the conversation as you go home to your families and out into the community. Thank you. Thank you.